Welcome to the Senia Happy Hour Podcast with your host, Lori Bull. We know you're busy, so we bring you one hour's worth of content in under 30 minutes, leaving you time for a true happy hour. Hello, everyone. Uh, today, I got to speak with Daniel Wickner. And Daniel, he, him, his, is the founder of Identity Centered Learning. It's a framework for supporting students' identity development in schools. This work builds on culturally relevant, responsive, and sustaining pedagogies and is informed by his own biracial, multicultural, and multilingual identity, along with his 13 years in international education. He currently teaches third grade at Hong Kong International School and supports schools as a consultant in the areas of identity and DEIJ. In today's conversation, we discuss his own background in schools and the impact that had on him as well as what he means by identity-centered education. This was new learning for me and incredibly impactful. It really caused me to reflect on my past teaching practices and how I could have done better to honor all identities in my room. I hope you'll take away as much as I did from today's conversation. There are just a few moments in the show where there are some sound issues due to our poor connection, but it's really not a problem. So I just wanted to let you know about that in advance. And now, on to the show. Hi, Daniel, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. That's great having you. So as I mentioned in your introduction, you are the founder of Identity Centered Learning. Um, and that's identitycentered.com, correct? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's a framework for supporting students' identity development in schools. Why does this topic of identity matter to you? Yeah, well, um, I mean, I think it should matter to all of us, but I know it matters to me because it's been a struggle. Um, I think that for all of us, things that have been challenging for us in our lives in many ways define us um, and define our journeys or where we are in our journeys. And, And for me, identity has been, my identity has been one that's challenged me and I've grappled with and continue to struggle with um, throughout the years, both as, as a, you know, as a child, also as an adult and as an educator. Um, And then also just sort of noticing how that identity changes and throughout my life and noticing the identities of my students and how they change and what affects them um, and, and how those impacts happen and whether or not they're intentional, unintentional, both from my perspective, having had certain things impact my identity um, and also having control over certain aspects of my identity. It's sort of trying to break that down and look at my work as an educator through that lens of what am I doing as an educator inside the classroom in my relationship with students and the systems that I create um, and how is that impacting who students become um, and when they become it. Thanks. So I read an incredibly powerful article that you wrote um, for Thai Online. It was called A Focus on Identity. Um, in this article, you a part that really stood out to me 
uh, and we'll be posting this in our show notes, uh, was when you said, like other BIPOC individuals, I have needed to grapple with my racial and cultural identities for my whole life, starting from the day kindergarten classmates laughed at my onigiri lunch. I have needed to explain my mix of races and cultures to thousands of people in four different languages, listening as they ask, what are you and where are you really from? But always hearing, explain how you're not one of us. Uh, so this is, this is a really powerful piece, Daniel. I think of that little kindergarten Daniel being laughed at because of his lunch, and it's truly heartbreaking. Can you just tell us a little bit more about what that experience was for you and what we, how we can kind of put ourselves into the shoes of our students? Yeah, I, and, and I think that now reflecting on that sentence, um, that experience still continues to be very powerful for me, um, not because it was just the lunch, it's, you know, just little, you know, little rice balls, you know, Japanese rice balls. It, it's not, not a, you know, <laughs> massive thing, but, but I think that it was a symbol of a lot more. And I think that that's, as a child, maybe didn't understand symbolism, but I, I, that symbolism impacted me. Um, and it impacted me um, throughout my life, continues to impact me, um, that symbolism. Um, and because that food um, represented more than just my lunch, it represented my family, it represented my cultures, it represented my history. Um, but in many ways, it also represented um, being made to feel inherently or intrinsically less than. Um, I think that that's sort of a common thread throughout a lot of marginalized experience, marginal experiences of marginalization is this feeling of because of who you are, you are less than. And I think being growing up as an Asian American, mixed race Asian American, uh, noticing that certain parts of me were laughed at and um, joked about and, and put down, whereas other parts of me weren't. Um, and so I think that those experiences made me just sort of instinctively as in, in sort of a, a way of, of self-protection um, uh, to move myself towards the parts of me, um, the Americanness, the whiteness, the maleness, the aspects of me that were empowered within the systems that I inhabited, uh, specifically, you know, within education, within society. Um, and centering those parts of myself and, and really highlighting those parts of myself and hiding the parts of myself that didn't experience that kind of affirmation. Um, and I think that, that reflecting on that has made me think about, you know, what are the, what are the experiences that, that my students go through um, systemically, not just, you know, you know, this day and that day, but, but rather, you know, what messages are we, are we sending through the educational systems, you know, that we provide for them, the environments, the practices, and what messages are those sending? Uh, what's the symbolism behind those messages? Kind of like the symbols that I sort of soaked in. Um, and then what, what actions are, are children taking based on those messages? What, what, what are they doing when they internalize that message, which unfortunately they do. But I guess on the flip side, also thinking about what are the, how can we shift systems or what systems that we do already have are affirming students' identities um, uh, completely, 
um, and and demarginalizing students, what messages are those systems sending, and how are students taking action based on those? So, so kind of going, it, it, the, my reflection has made me think about, you know, what are the systems that we have? How are schools actually run? And what messages those are sending and what actions do students take? And this can go in a very positive or a very negative direction. Yeah, absolutely. And as you were speaking, I was reflecting on TV shows that we watch and movies where there is bullying due to race or disability or um, gender or sexuality. And, and so often in my head, I think, does that really happen? Is that really true. And I think that many of us teachers probably feel that because we are not thinking that way, that our students are not thinking that way. And, you know, does that make sense? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, so thank you for kind of bringing this to light. Um, In your article, you, you, encourage teachers to be identity experts. You say this constant exercise of identity, self-reflection and growth can help us all become finer teachers, identity experts for our students as they go through their own identity journeys, recognizing, understanding and confronting our privilege, biases, blind spots and complicity wherever they exist. It allows us and our students to truly see systemic inequity and injustice wherever they exist. So (laughs) that's a lot. So can you share more about this and about how identity connects to education? Yeah, I'm sorry. That was probably a run-on sentence. No, no. Again, very powerful. (laughs) I encourage everyone to read this. Yeah, uh, well... One of the biggest lessons I feel like I learned as an educator uh, from the teacher mentors that I was very fortunate to have was the idea of modeling um, and realizing that growing up, that wasn't something that I had really noticed in the teachers that I had, maybe because I don't know why, but it didn't seem like the teachers were really acting like they wanted me to act. They weren't putting themselves out there and saying, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to, set myself up as a role model for you. Um, and maybe it's because I didn't see my teachers as role models, um, but that that idea of modeling, I think is really powerful. And, I, and I've noticed throughout my teaching career that the, the actions, the, the attitudes, the behaviors, the words, the language that I use, um, that more, it, it impacts students more than what I just tell them. Um, and I think that to, to every veteran teacher that's, that's pretty, that's pretty standard. Like you just notice that, right? right. And, and so applying that to identity-centered learning and the idea of, well, you know, we are as human beings, especially adult human beings, we've, we have a lot of experience in our lives going through our identity journeys. Um, but a lot of us, hopefully all of us, um, have reflected on our identities, reflected on who we are and had identity crises, identity challenges, um, identity complexity, um, which I think that we all have if we take a moment to look at it. Um, none, none of us is simple. Um, and so thinking about, well, students are going through this as well, students of all ages. Um, 
are, are putting together the pieces of who they are and sort of rearranging those pieces and, and swapping in other or discovering new pieces and, and tracing parts of themselves. They're going through this process as well, just like we have. And so thinking about my role as a, as a teacher of children, not just as a transmitter of content and skills, but rather somebody who can model um, the practices around identity development. So not necessarily telling students, you need to be this, you need to be that, but rather this is how I chose to become this. Maybe you can give it a try or maybe find a different way. But, but And this is a challenge that I had and this is how I, how I confronted that challenge. Here's something that I discovered with myself. Here's something that I'm still grappling with. Here's something that still confuses me about myself. Um, here's a time when I was made to feel X, Y, or Z because of who I am. And here's how I responded to it. Maybe I should have responded this way or maybe not. And, and really positioning myself as that model um, and noticing that when I would share those experiences with students, when I would put myself out there as that model, then that's when like popcorn, all of these, the sharing would come out and all of this connection would come out. Um, really genuine stuff where students would just bring forth stuff that they wouldn't do if I had just said, tell me about a time when. Right. Um, yeah, and sharing I think that those that, personal stories that really brought that out yeah. for them. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. So how do you define identity-centered learning? Yeah, well, I, I think it's in the name. Um, <laughs> it's centering identity. I, I feel like... Uh, it's kind of a play on student-centered learning. Um, I, to be honest, student-centered learning, I guess, I get, I think gets thrown around way too much. I think it's anything that involves students suddenly becomes student-centered learning. And I think that that's, I just don't, I think it's incomplete student-centered learning, the discourse around it. And so I wanted to get deeper into that and say, yes, we're talking about students, but we're talking about, we're centering how students develop understandings, deep understandings about who they are, who they and who they will become um, and putting that at the center of the educational process. And, and I would claim that it's already at the center of the educational process. We just don't recognize it that way because we're so occupied with standards, skills, proficiencies, grades, et cetera. But the biggest thing that you emerge with at the end of the educational process is a greater understanding of who you are, hopefully. Um, right. uh, and But I think that we also often emerge from our school experience with really toxic messages about who we are and those messages which we also apply to others identities and so when we if we look at education as a process of identity development which is how i would define it then that really that to me was a really big paradigm shift where it made me look at what i was doing inside the classroom and thinking about what are my priorities if i'm placing my students identity development at the center then how am i is, is this thing that I do with students, is this empowering them to, to realize, you know, to become who they are? Is this empowering them in terms of becoming or is this mandating or denying or dismissing parts of who they are? Um, and it's made me shift a lot of my practices, which I realized were problematic. And I continue to notice things like, oh no, man. And, and, I, and I go back and, and so this is, that's been sort of the core is, is that, student identity development is at the center and it's an empowerment. It's putting them in the driver's seat of their own identity development. So it's not talking about identity every day, 
-hmm. It's not talking about who we are every single day, but it's always having that in mind. It's always having our identity in the room while we're doing our schooling. And then noticing when is that identity actually being empowered and uplifted? Um, and when is it not? Yeah. Well, I think, I think about our own backgrounds and where we're all coming from. So this might be a convoluted question, so I'm going <laughs> to talk it through. Uh, so I think about myself. I'm a cisgender white female, um, but I do have a background because my son has a disability. Uh, so I look at a lot of things through that lens, the disability lens. So I'm wondering how as teachers, if we don't have the background of particular identities, how we can support our students without having that background. That's, that's a massive question. Um, yes. And I can, and thinking about it from, you know, the perspective of special education and, and differing abilities as well. Um, it helps me, you know, really helps me to reflect on, you know, not only my, you know, privilege as being, you know, able-bodied, um, but also on the systems that have benefited me. Um, and I think that it's, you're, you're absolutely right that when we have a blind spot, which comes from our privilege, which comes from something that's advantaged to us, it's very easy to completely overlook something that's incredibly damaging and incredibly toxic. Mm -hmm. um, I'm reminded of, of, you know, when I was in second grade and um, I was, uh, for whatever reason, I was very, very good at second grade math. Um, and second grade math as defined by my teacher and the curriculum at the time, which really back then was a memorization of, of times tables. And right. so I just remember playing a game called Around the World. Oh my gosh. Where I don't know yes. how many times this has come up, but you know, I because I had, you know, a head start on practicing my multiplication facts, that game, which was very often played inside the classroom, which was just, you know, like, can you get this fact? Can you remember this quicker? Do you have quicker recall than the person next to you? I was made to feel incredibly intelligent mm -hmm. when, and, and at, the, at the expense of everyone else inside the classroom and being privileged in that way and feeling like, wow, this, and that was an identity message for me. It right. was, it was a, a toxic identity message for me because it gave me a very, very incomplete view of you know, what intelligence and intelligences are and, and, the, and the essence of learning. It gave me so many toxic messages, but it still impacted my identity. And I wouldn't say it did in a positive way. And it also impacted the identities of everyone else in the classroom. And it sent some very powerful signals about you know, who they are, who I am. Mm -hmm. And so reflecting on that experience, which I remember thinking about so fondly, you know, because of how great it made me feel. Um, and then realizing that, oh my gosh, like this, this benefited me in such like, like this rearrangement of resources, of resources of power, that system was inequitable and I, and I benefited from that. And so thinking back on that and many other experiences, many of which benefited me, um, has, has made me incredibly passionate about the idea of how, you know, sort of the centering of ability within classrooms. I mean, let's admit it. School as we see it is centered around the idea of ability. 
And I think that that makes it really challenging for those with differing abilities, people who are neurodivergent, you know, people who, who don't fit this very, very narrow idea of which abilities are quote unquote developmental, developmentally appropriate um, for a particular number of years on the planet. Um, and, and you know, thinking about standards as well, and what is what is considered a standard, what is considered excellence, what is considered proficiency, and to really question that, and realizing that just just because somebody is proficient in those particular things, um, to question the system as opposed to questioning the child um, when when they don't when they don't match the pretty arbitrary set of very narrow band of of abilities that are valued. And I think that that's, it comes back to that valuing. Um, yeah. I was reading the transcript from, from your previous podcast and, and talking about value and how we, we associate ability with value. I mean, this is, this is I don't want to get too much into the capitalist you know, under, <laughs> underpinnings of education, but, yeah, no. but we do, we do it's, it's connected with this valuing of ability. Um, yes. And so questioning that and really pulling that back and, and thinking about what are the messages that these systems are sending to students of all abilities, um, mm-hmm. even those who are quote unquote, excellent students, it's sending them toxic messages as well. Yeah, you are absolutely right. And it, <laughs> and it's kind of basic as this is, uh, it reminds me of these memes that keep coming out on Facebook right now. Um, as, pe- as students are going through graduation, they're saying, you know, look at all, yes, there's all these kids that are being celebrated for their intelligence and, or their music abilities or whatever, but make sure you also celebrate the students who were the quiet ones that, you know, slip through under the radar or that just don't have any accolades to their names through this completely arbitrary <laughs> system that's been created for them. And yes, they've made it and they've accomplished just as much as everyone else that's going through it. So yeah, and (laughs) your whole story about around the world, you know, I taught third grade for, I don't know how many years and uh, yeah, I have a lot of reflections (laughs) because I don't know how many times we played that game. And of course the same student always won, right? Always. And yeah, it just, it, it's made me think, but that's what we do as teachers, right? We reflect. So thank you. <laughs> uh, so tell me more about how identity centered learning can have an impact on our learners. Well, my hope is that, I mean, I think that there's, I think there's plenty of anecdotal evidence that goes to show that education has an impact on identity. Education impacts, I mean, we talk about, you know, education is for the future of, yeah, exactly. Like education impacts who we are and how we carry ourselves through life. Um, I mean, of course, family and society do as well, but education, we spend seven hours a day in a school. Um, And so thinking about, you know, really super duper long-term in terms of, you know, as opposed to very, very short term, I think a, I think a lot of aspects of what we do as, as schools traditionally, and unfortunately still, is very, very short term, very, you know, very much in the door, out the door. Um, you know, we have to 
you know, this checkbox, that checkbox. Um, and so thinking about, you know, for me as an educator, when I look at students in my class, um, I actually focus a lot on, on math, um, partly because I feel like math is, is a subject that has very, gets very strong reactions out of people. Um, and there's very strong identity messages that, that students develop. And you hear adults saying, oh, I'm not a math person, or oh, they're a math whiz, or um, I'm not a numbers guy. Um, there's a lot of these sort of identity messages and, and questioning how, how do these identities, you know, nobody really says like, oh, I'm, you know, I don't, you know, I guess you could say you're much of a talker, but I, I feel like math really gets that out of people. And I, and I think yes. that it's one of those subjects that's very, very highly, heavily steeped in this, this centering of ability. Um, and, and, and so thinking back about why is it, you know, at what point in a, in a person's life is this message ingrained in their head that I'm not a math guy or I am a math guy. I'm, you know, I'm a math nerd. And I, I would claim that it has to do with a connection. So this idea of connection to a particular type of thinking or a particular topic. And just the simple idea that someone's ability at a particular area should dictate their connection to it. Um, I think is, is a fallacy. I think it's, and I think it's wrong. Um, and I, I know this from both sides. I know this from the side of feeling a strong connection to something because I was good at it, but realizing that I didn't have a really deep intrinsic connection to it. And also, you know, the other side of, of not being, or not being confident enough or not being good at something and feeling like I didn't have any business building a connection with that. And this all comes back to identity, right? There's a reason why there's a reason why we feel out of place when we're doing something. It's because we don't fit. Something about us doesn't fit there. Hmm. And so how can we create environments that that have a very, very low barrier to entry to get into the arena and to, to actually try things out? Or are we putting up a barrier right at the beginning? I'm reminded of the, the pre-assessment, the pre-test, which to me is just symbolizes everything that is so identity damaging. Mm -hmm. We haven't even started this unit. Nobody's even taught you anything and I'm testing you on it. Yeah. Yep. And so where's the, it's a gateway. The, 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 you know, the, the, like the drawbridge is already pulled up and you don't even have a chance to get inside the castle and, and you don't, you know, and so I think that so much of education is, is summed up that way. Um, not to make a math pun. Um, <laughs> um, and so I think that you know, Senia's focus on inclusion, I think that that speaks to just the simple things that we do without thinking. Um, and you know, how can we, you know, create an environment in which, yes, we're all learning, we're all growing, we're all growing our skills. Let's not act like it's school's not about growing skills. But if our focus is growth, why do we need to have a gateway to that growth? Um, the gateway should be open and, you know, so that that growth can happen. And how can we create an environment where, where we are inside our particular journeys isn't that's not the center of what we do. Yes, of course, we're going to be at different places, but is that the defining aspect of who we are as learners? Or can we find ways, can we design 
learning environments and promote attitudes and practices and relationships at the foundation of things that, that don't center that ability so that students don't see that as the defining aspect of their connection to that particular content. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes a lot of creativity. Um, it continues to take creativity from me um, because I notice it every single day where I'm like, mm, no, that sent the wrong message that no, not doing that again. And I think just like you mentioned with your reflections, um, we have to think we have to do better. We have to do better. And I think what I heard you say loud and clear is we need to question the system more so than, or we need to question the system, not the child. And that's just, that's everything right there. (laughs) I would add on that questioning the system rather than questioning the child or necessarily questioning only ourselves. I think that we as educators have a tendency to, of course, we want to reflect on our own practice, but we also have to recognize that we're within, you know, we, we exist and we operate within systems of oppression and that I notice them every single day where I notice that there's a limit to the power. I can say one thing in class, but, you know, when the child moves to the next grade or, you know, goes home or, or, you know, goes to another school, um, is that message, you know, even if it's a, it's a great message, even if it is, if that message is, is, is muddied by something else. So recognizing what power do we have and what responsibility our leaders have. Agreed. And I do encourage teachers when they're looking into moving schools, excuse me, when they're moving schools to really take a look and study uh, the school or their system that they're moving into and what are their core values and what are the messages that they are sending to the world through their website to through their actions, just through everything and ensure that you're going to be a good fit in that system, that your beliefs and values match. So, yeah, well, (laughs) Daniel, thank you so much for your time today and um, for teaching me something new. Um, It's, it's just great to hear from experts such as your, such as yourself. And if you could just before we leave, share a little bit more about your, your identity centered learning uh, website and what people can get from your website. Sure. Yeah. And (laughs) um, thanks for highlighting that. Um, So that the website it's um, I would say that it, so it has, um, uh, has some articles that I've written. It has some podcasts and um, that I've been on like this one. Um, but I feel like the page that probably gets, you know, might be the most useful is the resources page. Um, and it has just a ton of infographics, which I admit are very cluttered. Um, I tend to have a lot that I want to say, and I <laughs> can't stop myself from saying it, as you might have noticed from this podcast. Um, but, and so, but, but I feel like the infographics, um, they're, you know, they, they kind of break down some, some key concepts um, that I've kind of fixated on um, and help to kind of, my hope is that they kind of demystify um, and, but also complexify identity. Um, so, you know, not, you know, there's nothing there that says here are three easy steps for, 
no, none of this is, um, you know, we're, you know, as I mentioned to you before, you know, we're, we're juggling all of these different things at once. And um, so I feel like those infographics, they tend to kind of hopefully broaden our perspective and our set of practices um, kind of to grow our toolkit, our, our toolkit of, of strategies for, for approaching identity in a way that really is empowering. Perfect. Well, we will also have those, your website on our show notes as long as well as your articles or, um, that you've written. So again, thank you for your time today, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for today's show. For more information, including how to subscribe and show notes, please head to our website. That's senyainternational.org slash podcasts. Until next time, cheers.